going to now uh, introduce to you the first of our two speakers. Um, I'm delighted to introduce Gabrielle Ahuli Ferreira Holt. Gabby holds a bachelor's degree in fine arts uh, and she has also a master's in librarianship. She was born, lives and works in Hawaii and is a writer of children's books about Hawaiian stories and culture. Gabby believes in the importance of giving children access and exposure to stories and legends of cultural significance, because as she says, it helps them navigate their world as both indigenous people. She says, if children understand the world around them from a cultural perspective, they are not only able to engage more deeply with their culture, but to create more meaningful connections across cultures as well. So I'd like to uh, ask you to welcome, please, Gabby. And Gabby, we're going to pass over to you and, uh, and uh, look forward to hearing uh, all that you'd like to share with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's such a privilege to be here. I'm feeling a little bit emotional, actually, like looking at um, where everybody is from. It is such a privilege to be able to talk about my culture and um, uh, just thinking about the reach that the internet has created for us. I think um, the internet has created like this reach that my ancestors could have never dreamed about. The fact that I'm speaking to people across the entire world about stories that have been told in my culture from time immemorial. And so I just wanted to say thank you so much for this opportunity. It is so, so special to me. Thank you. Um, I have a few slides and I'm just going to share them right now. So um, I'm going to be talking about storytelling and kind of my journey, how I came to storytelling and what I am doing with storytelling. Um, so I've titled my presentation, Storytelling in the Classroom, Building Cultural Literacy, Inquiry and Social Emotional Intelligence. Um, so here's what I'm gonna talk about. I'm gonna introduce myself and my journey as a storyteller. I'm going to talk about storytelling as a tool to build cultural literacy, um, storytelling as a method of inquiry, and storytelling as a means of self-determination and social-emotional development. Um, and my presentation is um, populated with images of the place that I live, which is Hawaii. And on the right here, you can see images of my books. Um, so to start off with, I was born and raised on the island of Oahu, which is the most populated island. Um, the image here is the view from my house. I wanted everyone to be very grounded in where I'm coming from. So this is what I see every morning. This is the place that I'm from and how I'm thinking. Um, we are descended from the land that we came to. It is a part of us. It is a part of our genealogy. And so I think it's important, not only for indigenous people, for, but for everybody to be very connected to their place. So I hope that throughout the presentation, you are connected to my place. Um, I was born and raised on this island, but the majority of my Hawaiian family is originated on another island. And so my ties to Hawaii are sort of drawn across the archipelago. Um, English was my first and primary language, like many indigenous peoples, um, um, Hawaiian people's culture and language has been marginalized throughout history due to colonialism and um, imperialism. Um, and I began to learn Hawaiian when I was 14 years old. Um, my great grandmother was a fluent Hawaiian speaker and my grandmother grew up understanding it, but not speaking it. And my father could not speak it at all. And so that is kind of, just a very quick illustration within my own family of how quickly um, a connection to culture can deteriorate and how sometimes it is up to the individual to rediscover that connection. And for me, it was a connection through stories, really. Um, and I published my first adaptations of my legends when I was 24. So it was a pretty long process. Um, besides storytelling, I am also a school librarian and a teacher at a progressive school 
in Hawaii. Um, we are a John Dewey based school. So it's actually kind of a happy accident that I'm talking to a, an, a fellow uh, progressive school movement because I think we have a lot in common and I'm and I am coming to this talk with a progressive educator lens as well. So I feel like I can speak on these, this topic from multiple perspectives, one being cultural and like the importance of storytelling within cultures, but also like the importance of storytelling within the progressive education tradition. And they go hand in hand, really. Hawaii has a very, very rich um, history of progressive education. And um, I don't have time to go into that right now, but and that's not really on topic, but uh, something to explore maybe later. So throughout the process of writing and adapting, I wouldn't say writing actually, adapting my legends, um, I found that access to these legends was really limited. Um, when I was doing my research and writing these books, I was fortunately a student at the university and this, the University of Hawaii has the largest repository of um, Hawaiian and Pacific writing. And so it was only because I was a student there that I was granted access to many of the sources that I use for my adaptations. Um, for example, one of my stories, I read about 15 different versions of it. And some of those versions only existed in one place like a typewritten page stuck in a folder labeled ephemera. Um, some of them were written in Hawaiian. And as I said earlier, not every Hawaiian person has the privilege of speaking Hawaiian. It was through the privilege of me being able to speak Hawaiian that I was able to translate and find meaning in this particular version of the story. Um, so I realized, oh, access to these stories is very limited and they're somewhat gatekept. And that was kind of an interesting realization for me to come to, not only as a Hawaiian person, but as a librarian as well, who is, who is interested in increasing access to information. And so writing these stories kind of inadvertently became a way to increase access to our stories. I felt like I was writing something that didn't exist yet. Versions of these legends did not exist for the age group that I was writing for. And so that felt like a way of increasing access and hopefully sparking interest for young children. Once they read this version, as they get older, they can find more like I did. Um, so I wanted to start us in earnest um, with an olelo no eau or a proverb. Um, Hawaiian culture and language is very rich in these proverbs. Um, and in Hawaiian, it says, and it means not all knowledge is learned in one school. And I know as progressive educators, we all understand that completely. And so it's very interesting that um, historically, Hawaiians knew this as well, that we can derive meaning and information from so many different sources and stories being a very, very rich source of information. Check in. So first I'm gonna talk about storytelling as a tool to build cultural literacy. And when I say cultural literacy, I mean the ability for a child or a person to traverse cultural spaces or just spaces in general with a cultural sensitivity and empathy with a respect and awe for these spaces. So a child could theoretically come to a place in Hawaii that is sacred to Hawaiian people and know exactly how to behave because they've been taught to um, experience reverence for these sacred places. And then the very next day, go to a bond dance with their family and, and completely act appropriately. But it's because they've developed these empathy skills and they know something is sacred to one culture. So I act this way. And so I should act this way in another space as well. Um, and as we know, we're living in this strange moment where things are both extremely interconnected and wildly separated. And I think that this idea of cultural literacy will serve children especially well in this moment as the world becomes increasingly interconnected, whether they're interacting like we are online 
or if they're going out in the world and meeting people on a global in a global scale. Um, so I think this will serve them well as they grow and learn about the world around them. And of course, in progressive education, interdependence or the theme of interdependence is so important to us. And we really, it is one of our pillars that we teach children that interdependence is key. And so when um, children have strong cultural literacy skills, they understand that interdependence doesn't just happen within a classroom or a group of children. It happens globally. It happens when they interact with other people in the world, with their families, when their families interact with other families. Um, so it's really a key skill. We talk a lot about that idea of multiple literacies, like critical literacy, information literacy, digital literacy. And I would add that cultural literacy should remain towards the core of everything that we do. Storytelling as inquiry. So I think when some people think about storytelling, they tend to think about it only as like a purely language arts-based practice. But I argue that actually it's an inherently interdisciplinary practice. It can actually be used to reinforce and deepen thinking in any unit of study. Um, so I actually have some examples here of actual units that use storytelling um, at the school that I work at, but used legends and stories as a thread or, or even the hook, the core of the unit. Um, so our second and third graders have a big geology unit and they study Pele. Um, they study the volcano goddess and they talk about her and they tell her legends and her stories. Um, we taught a public health unit in like the history of public health in Hawaii. And we included legends and narratives of previous public health crises in Hawaii. And also legends of um, when we look to legends and stories and folk tales in Hawaii, we find that even stories that maybe seem metaphysical, they often have like a very real world grounding detail in them. There's this really amazing legend of a woman finding the cure for Hansen's disease, but it, it takes a lot of context and a lot of research to figure out, oh, that's actually what they were talking about. Um, and so I, I encourage people to think about ways to weave storytelling into units that maybe don't necessarily lend itself very elegantly to storytelling, but you will find that um, kids will always find that hook and will always like, it will always lead them down this path of very rich inquiry. And I wanna talk about storytelling as self-determination. And when I say self-determination, I mean sort of like our development of identity, like who we are as individuals and who we are as people and how we relate as individuals to the world or to the collective. Self-determination also has a lot of connotations, especially for indigenous people and especially for indigenous people in Hawaii, when a lot of our um, grappling with issues has to do with self-determination. How do we how do we determine ourselves as a nation within a nation? Are we able to do that? So in Hawaiian thinking, um, storytelling, genealogy, and family are all intrinsically linked through our language. The word for stories, legends, and narratives of any kind is mo'olelo. Um, the word for genealogy is mo'okuaho. Um, the word for children or descendant is mo'opuna. And the word for ancestor is kupuna. So the root word mo'o is kind of that common thread. And when we look at the meaning of mo'o, mo'o means lizard, quite literally. But then we think about what our ancestors would have observed when they saw the lizard. They would have seen the backbone of the lizard, the interconnected spine. The ridges of mountains are also called mo'o. So it's this idea of this interconnectedness. Narratives and stories and legends are a way for all of us to feel interconnected with each other. Our genealogies are a way of being interconnected. Um, puna 
means spring, like a freshwater spring. And kupuna means is like the source of a spring. So there's that also that very interesting connection in language as well, the source of the spring, the source of knowledge and our connection to our descendant. We're connecting to that spring. And in Hawaiian thinking, so legends and stories, there's no dichotomy there. Legends, stories, narratives, they're all the same thing. And so the further we can move away from this idea that storytelling is just legends and folktales and focus instead on storytelling is very real for many people. Um, for example, the woman I talked about earlier, our fire goddess Pele, there are Hawaiian families today who consider themselves to be mo'opuna or descendants of Pele. And so when we tell stories of Pele, we're not just telling legends and folktales and myths, we are telling their genealogy. So for many cultures, folktales are not just something, some abstract story. It is their lived experience. It is the lived experience of their kupuna or their ancestors. And so I think that's important for us to think about as educators how we can use storytelling to create culturally responsive spaces in our classroom, but also to engage children in a very real way with their world and in their classroom. And so again, these legends and stories are a path to self-determination for many of us. I would say from, you know, speaking on, from my personal experience, I didn't come into my identity as a native Hawaiian person until I was older. I think I had more formative experiences when I was 18, 19, 20 than I did when I was a child. But it was because I was given the gift of learning my language and being able to connect to those stories and give myself context for what it means to be Native Hawaiian or Kanaka Maoli, as we say. So these mo'olelo, the stories, legends, narratives, they show us the past so that we can move into the future. Because in Hawaiian thinking, when we think about the chronology of time and how we situate ourselves, we face the past. So the word for the past is kavamamua, which means the time in front of us. And the future is kavamahope, which means the time behind us. So as we move through time, we're facing the past. And right, so in Hawaiian thinking, context is so important. And that's why storytelling is so important. It gives us context for just being in the world. So we're always looking to the past for context and guidance. So when we think about bringing stories into the classroom, think that this is a way to bring context and guidance to your children. Lastly, storytelling for social emotional development. So again, as progressive educators, we know that social emotional development is at the core of everything that we do. And like I've been sort of trying to emphasize, when you bring storytelling into the classroom, it allows children to exercise their empathy skills, their critical thinking, and it heightens their appreciation for the world around them. I think that creating a very real, critical, meaningful relationship with their world is so relevant right now because of our changing climate. I think that all children right now are fairly aware of our changing climate, but to make that relationship between humans and the planet much more concrete for them, I think will only help them feel like they can serve the world better. And I think that storytelling can begin anywhere. If you're not comfortable telling stories of other cultures, start by telling a story from your life. That's how Hawaiians think. Storytelling is not just telling stories of Pele and Maui and, you know, these demigods and supernatural things. It's also stories of families and how families have existed on the land since you know, who can remember when? Because the stories of the families on the land and the land are so intrinsically linked. And so it's, it's like a double narrative in a way. So 
encourage children to also dig deep and find the stories within themselves. Or maybe they can talk to their grandmother. Maybe they can talk to their mom, their sister, their brother, and ask them for narratives about their lives. And then they bring that into the classroom. And then it creates a very real thread of empathy because maybe somebody else had a similar story and they've experienced the same thing. So you create this like very rich tapestry of stories in your classroom, which is very beautiful. Um, and lastly, I wanted to end with another Olelo no Eo. Um, and this one, um, Hawaiian language, I don't know if you can tell, very contextual and has a lot of double meanings. So um, this says, He lavaia no ke kai papa, he pokole ke aho, he lavaia no ke kai hohonu, he lo ke aho. And it, figuratively means a person whose knowledge is shallow does not have much, but a person whose knowledge is great does. Literally, it's talking about a fisherman who has a long line is more successful than a fisherman with a short line. And so I think by bringing stories into the classroom, you are adding length to your students' line and length to your own lines as well. And, and that is all for me for now, but, thank and I thank you so much for your time. Thank, thank you, Gabby. And thank you so much for putting uh, so many really important um, uh, ideas and issues into, into that uh, incredibly um, powerful presentation of, of the origins of the storytelling and the importance of it for cultural, uh, tra transversing the cultural world and uh, how, to find, how to find those stories. Uh, not just in the past, but also in the present. Thank you. And so I'd like to move on to, uh, now and um, introduce to uh, many of you, uh, someone that some of you will know, but not all, and that is our uh, AMI elementary trainer, Carla Foster. Carla is um, an incredibly uh, passionate uh, storyteller. She believes very much in the power of story to convey um, multiple levels of interconnectedness and um, knowledge to children. Um, her own background is actually originally in social anthropology and Scandinavian studies, and her master's degree was actually in old Icelandic literature and Norwegian literature. Um, so uh, Carla has taught uh, at uh, three to six and six to 12 levels for many years, and uh, as you know, uh, is going to share some uh, ideas about storytelling within the context of cosmic education and uh, its art. So Carla, can I pass over to you? Thank you so much. Okay. Oh yeah, right, on the technology? Yeah. yeah. Oh, great. Thank you so much, Gabby, for um, starting us off. And um, luckily, even across uh, 12 hours of time difference, we've been kind of thinking alike which is always wonderful when you're doing these kinds of things. Um, in, um, in the cultural tradition that I studied, as um, Lynn said, we have a myth of creation that starts with uh, a, a chaos called Genungagap, which is a void as we say in our story of God with no hands, the darkness was on the face of the deep. And at first, the, at first there was chaos. And the earth or the world is born through the mixture of fire and ice from two realms, the realm of Muspelheim and the realm of Niflheim, the, the ice being Niflheim and the, um, the fire being Muspelheim. And from that, that mixture, a giant a frost giant is born and um, from him, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the races of the world are born and so on. But this mixture of fire and ice ties also the uh, Scandinavian people to the land. And I wanted to start with this quote by Henry Beston, who was a naturalist, um, who retreated to the to Cape Cod after the Second World War to 
contemplate and to live back in nature to heal the wounds of war. And he said the three great elemental sounds in nature, the sound of rain, the sound of wind in a primeval wood, and the sound of the outer ocean on a beach. And he also said that nature is part of our humanity and that this, if we lose contact with this divine mystery, we cease to be um, the species who wonders. And um, many people who maybe um, read on the surface of Montessori's works or things um, have come across her being kind of negative towards the fairy tale or the legend or the myth. And yet, when you really read it, she says, no, I, I, that's not what I think. Um, it's more that um, the, the young child needs work with their hands. They need practical work in the world. And so the, it was that balance that she seemed to be objecting to. And also, she talks about how it's important to look at what are the characteristics of the tale that do appeal and to and that convey truth to children and to utilize those. So she says the, the story of the past can be just a boring account of events and it must not be given in this way. It must be given like a fairy tale. The stories must be short with a few well-drawn characters. The environment must be limited, unusual and very clear. They must all be built around something fantastic. And I really love the uh, metaphor or the the way of looking at time. Um, I talk a lot about the concept of time in in our courses and the idea that actually the past is in front of you because that's what you can look back and know. The, past, the future being behind you is the unknown with which you, in a way, walk into backwards um, with only the knowledge that you really have from the past. You cannot have knowledge of the future. So to talk about the education for the future is really should be mostly about really learning what are the lessons that the past has to teach us. And we have a fable that in a way starts at the end of our first great story and, and starts the beginning of the second great story. And it is an argument between the sun, the mountains, the water and the air. And um, and in that story, then, the only thing that solves this argument is the creation of life. And I think that there's a lot more truth in this fable that we sometimes forget as we rush on to other kinds of presentations, or we even don't feel comfortable telling this fable because we think, well, it's not very scientific. And yet, there's more, much more truth in this fable than we realize. And that this truth is then elaborated in our presentations rather than um, contradicted. In this fable, everybody is following their laws. The air is following its laws, the mountain is following its laws, the sun is following it laws, its laws, and the water is following its laws. And yet imbalance um, arises. And that is true both in nature and in life, that everything can be going right in the sense that everybody seems to be doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing. And yet imbalance happens. And then something has to happen to restore that balance. And the history of our climate on our planet is the history of these interactions between these four elements and then also the biosphere. And that the changes in the sun, the changes in the distribution of the continents, the changes in the atmosphere, the changes in the Earth's orbit, the changes in vegetation, um, animal activity and human activity are all part of what climate is. And as I was thinking and preparing for this, and I started to think about memory and what really helps us to form a deep memory of things. And I started to look at what people do who memorize things very well and who memorize things very deeply. And 
many of the strategies involved attaching emotions to the content, embodying it, dramatizing it, putting it into their bodies, as we know the children like to do. Repetition, but not just repetition, but sort of the deep repetition of seeing something from many angles and visualization, the creation of strong, clear imagery. And I think that because we have um, stories that you write down, that you then sometimes become bound by the written word, where you should probably more be thinking about what is the clear image that I can convey through my words. And so when we are telling stories in the classroom, my most practical uh, advice is to act like there is no written language. Act as if you are part of an oral tradition, in which case the children are not going to go back to the written source. They have the, they need the strength of your emotion. They need the strength of your body as you tell the story, the, the way in which you make contact with them. They need the visualization and that all of these things will also be important for their later literacy. When we're looking at, say, these elements in another story we tell about orographic rain, the images that come to my mind, which allow me to tell that story without the help of any kind of manuscript, it looks something like this. There's the sun, and it is <coughs> giving its light uh, to and its energy to the earth and the water. And it heats up the water and the air above it. And the warm air, its particles start to rise. And the water asks, can I have a ride? That's what I see in my head. And that is scientifically correct. The water has this tendency to jump onto the particles of water and start to be carried. And then the wind is blowing over the air, over the um, land or over the water, picking up this water, comes to the mountain and also is forced to rise. And we say that the water then starts to condense and starts to create clouds. And the water says, ah, you're getting very heavy. I'm going to have to drop you at the top of this mountain. And the mountain says, well, not our problem. You're just going to have to do what you have to do. I'm doing what I have to do. I'm sitting around being a, a, a giant solid. And then the air drops that water and keeps going over the tops of the mountains and says, see you next time to the water because you know they're going to meet up again at some other point. The water starts to precipitate and fall as rain. The plants grow on that side of the mountain and it's pretty dry over on the other side. So even taking away my little conversation bubbles, the images themselves tell, tell the story, both of the water cycle and of orographic rain, which we then combine to this chart. And then we ask the children to imagine where in the world is this happening? Where are the mountains getting in the way of this traveling air with its water on piggyback? And we can find many places in the world. And one of them is Hawaii, where the orographic rain plays a very, very big role in the um, distribution of water and therefore in the stories that are told about the windward side and the leeward side and the 
the way in which the vegetation is um, is distributed. And I have uh, spent actually a lot of time on Maui also, and that's it's such a wonderful um, vision of the, these these uh, these particular forces. And so, my part of this is really to tell you as elementary teachers, but even primary teachers, because you have to actually tell some of these stories because they create a connection to place, because they create a connection to um, the, the deep history of our earth and the future of our earth. And they also carry, carry have a narrative structure and the children need to hear that narrative structure where the story has a beginning, a middle and an end, or then it maybe starts again. But if, in order for them to really gain literacy, they do need to have that narrative structure and personifying things, personifying forces does not in many cases take away from what they're actually doing. When we personify the air, the water, the mountain, we are not turning them into something else. They are doing the work that they do. Um, they just are talking about it to us because they do not have a voice and we need to give them a voice and all the children need to hear that. And when we ask our students to make visual summaries of stories rather than to write down what we said, then we're also asking them to transcend their own language because the, the images can transcend our differences in terms of terminology, in terms of um, the way we say something in our own language. But I know when I get a visual summary from our students, regardless of what language it is, I can look at it and say, yes, this person knows the story and I can see it through the images. Just two examples. I think anybody who is an elementary person would, regardless of what language they speak, would understand what this is all about, about the solids, the liquids and the gases and the way they behave. And they are personified in a, in a, in a, in a way so that they, we see them as the agents they really are. And this is the beginning of the story of number. And this is how somebody imagines human beings wondering about, oh, how can I quantify the world and using their body as measurements, using objects as measurements, and then thinking, hmm, maybe we need some names for these and a system and moving on. So these storyboards, you can say, is really about transcending the individual words that are using and making sure that you get down to the real truth of these stories, which lies beneath the surface of the words, the truths about human tendencies for orientation, order, calculation, abstraction, the way in which natural phenomenon work. And as Gabby said, these stories are not that even, not our stories, but the stories of cultural literacy from around the world are not necessarily just fables or just legends. And I think to say the word just fable is kind of denigrating the fable because a fable is about truth. It's about, um, so to say that something is just a fable saying, oh, it's just about truth. <laughs> and, um, but they also have often geologic truth that in the stories of Pele, um, the, there's the story of, of uh, the, the digging of a, a type of a crater and the burning of a forest. And through the looking more closely at the oral traditions, the geologists have found that actually these oral traditions are more accurate than the geologists originally thought. 
that this idea of geo mythology is actually really important that the oral tradition was saying that a lot about the events in these stories that at first um, geologists did not agree and then they found out that the oral traditions were correct. So we have also another important um, cultural transmission and vehicle uh, that I know is, is important in Hawaiian culture and in many other cultures and that is the song. And so I knew that my children from the very first time I gave the story of the um, creation of the universe that volcanoes would be important to them. And so we made this song um, out of the facts that were being that were arising arising. And if you'd like to sing along, we can do a quick run through of that song goes like this. Can you feel the magma rising under your feet? The earth is trembling. God volcanus wakes and it is early in the morning. Hey ho, up she rises. Hey ho, up she rises. Hey ho, up she rises early in the morning. Under the ocean sea floor spreading up on the land, the mountains building lava flows and does our bidding early in the morning. Hey ho, up she rises. Hey ho, up she rises. Hey ho, up she rises early in the morning. And so on. And I chose a sea shanty for this also because these are these kinds of songs, these chants that help to convey important knowledge and help people work together and think together and do together. And when we tell oral stories, we have to also think about the later literacy that these are um, helping to build, that we have to <clears throat> always, as Marianne Wolf says in her book, Prost and the Squid, begin with explicit attention to the principal characteristics of oral language. These children know the sounds of their language, but they may not be conscious of the sounds of their language. They know the rules of the grammar because they speak grammatically, but they are not conscious of the rules of their language. They know that parts of sentences function in certain ways. Otherwise, they would neither be able to speak nor understand oral language. So in our work with sentence analysis, we just bring these to a conscious level. We know that the children know about how world words are built because they're using words. But when they become conscious of how words are built, like we got a perfect example of the way words can be built from Gabby about um, they can be built from these roots that then give us a clue as to the deeper meaning of some of these words and and why they come from that same family. And then the narrative structure, the way in which a story is put together, the way in which characters interact and the way in which resolution is found. And <clears throat> when we read nonfiction, it requires different kinds of visualization than reading fiction. So when we read nonfiction, it's often more like a mind map where we have a central idea and then we have supporting details that arrange themselves, hopefully in visualized pictures around that central idea. Whereas then a fiction story or um, a tale has a storyboard, it follows a narrative structure. But if we can tell our nonfiction stories as also as storyboards, we can help the children move from that particular understanding of narrative to the kind of mind map strategies that reading nonfiction entails. And we have to keep remembering that truth exists in both fiction and nonfiction. And maybe we should take away the um, idea that nonfiction is real and fiction is not, or 
and just talk about what kind of truth is hiding in each of the kinds of stories we tell. But I do also want to mention that it's not about just stories of the past or geology or geography or biology or history. It's also in the way we approach something as simple as naming. Now the students that I've, if I have any students here who've just been on our course in Prague, they're going to recognize this, but okay. That when we are thinking about definitions, one of the things that we tend to make the mistake of is saying the name and then giving the definition. But we have to, if we're, especially if we're working with elementary children, think where did the name come from? The name came from the definition that was already observed, that the definition is what is known actually, and it is only the name that is not. So if we can bring the definition to a conscious level, the children also recognize the need for the name in order to continue the conversation and help us abstract. And we looked at, in our course, we looked at the naming of these triangles, the seven triangles of reality, and how in primary we just name them, but in the elementary we have to ask the question, what do these have in common? They become the characters of our story and they are asking each other, what do you have in common with me? What do we all have that binds us together as a group? And through that conversation, the children can come to a definition of what a triangle is. And then we start to sort them and we say, well, what about those sides? And the children find out that there's really only three types of groups so that these groups of triangles have something special in common with each other that they don't have with the other groups. And we call them scalene, isosceles, and equilateral. But we know by through our observation what that means, whatever we call it in whatever language. And the same thing is true about the angles, that the angles give new groups, that these triangles now have new family members. And that's quite exciting because what they had in common with one, they don't have with another, but then they have something else in common with a different triangle. And then we look at how all of these are unique as well, that each type has a unique name, a beginning, a middle, and an end uh, family name, and we name all of them. And then we say, hmm, but maybe in each unique type, there is many. And we use our stick box and our constructions to explore further. And this becomes an open-ended exploration of the definition. But the definition was, was known intuitively, but then brought to conscious awareness through conversation and then applied. And Gabby talked about the, the social, moral aspect of stories. And in my class, we, we did the uh, Odyssey a couple of times. And in this hero's journey, there are many perils. And this is very appealing to our children. So the story of those perils is also the story of every individual life, even those that do not go out on a big adventure across the sea. One of those perils is Scylla and Charybdis, the monster on the one side, the eddy, the whirlpool on the other, basically between a rock and a hard place. And the children, when they read this part, they understood intuitively that that was about life in general, <laughs> that there was often um, choices to be made where you weren't exactly happy with either of them, but you had to make it anyway. There's the Lotus Eaters story of the temptation to just not, not continue the journey, just the temptation to stop thinking and to go into um, 
kind of an entertainment um, haze and not to take take on with courage the next part of the journey. And the children all know this because they've wanted to give up many times in things that they do. And so these stories of heroism are not stories of, of faraway people or faraway times. They're stories of us. And I want to end also with the sun, <laughs> that when we tell our stories, we're not just telling them for the emotional connection to the dilemma and things, but also to create that sense of wonder and gratitude. Um, and the story of Maui one of um, crosses all parts of Polynesia. And this is a, um, a monument at in New Zealand, also connected to Maui tethering the sun and creating the possibility for the long days to be able to harvest. And in Machu Picchu, there's a similar story uh, or from the, from the Inca civilization of this stone where um, on the winter solstice, it, it is just, the sun is just behind it. And it is as if you can uh, stop the sun from moving south and start it back to having longer days and um so these stories of the the deep relationship between human beings wondering about their world um, and trying to gain the world's favor in some way and um i wrote a, a song to the to the tune of chariots of fire because i had seen a model of uh, a small bronze chariot from the Bronze Age in Scandinavia, where also the sun, worship of the sun became very important for these early agriculturalists. And so the, um, the chorus goes like this, O glorious sun, O radiant sun, we thank you for shining such work you have done. We live in the grace of your bountiful light. We dance and rotate as the day turns to night. And all of our stories, whether they be the um, tales, are about deep knowledge, about the ways of knowing things. And this, what Gabby said, this inquiry, that ways of knowing things can be from scientific investigation, but can also be through metaphor. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Carla, uh, for that extraordinary glimpse into the the wonder and the importance of personification in the stories, and also the idea that we can carry deep truths that are relevant, uh, both looking backwards into the future <laughs> and forwards into the past. Um, and how it's not just about uh, bringing the ancient to consciousness, but also allowing the present to be interpreted through that consciousness and uh, through connecting with children.